This is the sermon podcast for Mosaic Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Committed to bringing the beauty of the gospel of Jesus to the broken places of our lives. Um, if you're, if you're kind of just been hanging around our church, uh, maybe for a few weeks, maybe this is your first week. Uh, again, if we haven't met yet, my name's Adam. Really thrilled that you're here today. Uh, we have been kind of... Uh, really for a little while, we started a, a series, a sermon series in the book of Acts, which is a New Testament book. Um, we started last fall, so a little over a year ago. Uh, we've taken some breaks. Uh, we, we took a break this summer. Uh, and we're actually going to be spending uh, the next two Sundays uh, in the book of Acts. Uh, so if you're kind of tracking along where we're headed. And then we're going to take a pause. Uh, we do this pretty annually. We're not a, we're not a church that follows like the, the church calendar really meticulously, but we, we we typically pause uh, kind of in the Christmas season, and we celebrate what's called Advent, which is a season of preparation. And so we'll we'll do that. Uh, I actually think I'm going to start that the the Sunday before Thanksgiving. So for those of you that are like church technical church calendar technical people, that's not technically Advent, but we're going to do we're going to do some stuff on the 22nd, and then we'll we'll spend uh, December uh, doing all that kind of stuff. So if you've brought your Bible with you, we are in the book of Acts this morning in the New Testament, picking up where we left off last week, which is uh, chapter 13. Let me just uh, really, really quickly, I don't want to spend a ton of time prefacing this this morning, but uh, the, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, was a really important figure in the early church. He's, he's on his first missionary journey at this point. He's traveling with Barnabas, um, and uh, one of his other companions, John Mark, has now left the tour, uh, but they are traveling along, and this morning we're picking up the passage where we left off in the same city. It's called Antioch in Pisidia, and uh, as far as the passage reads, what we dealt with last week was, was one Saturday kind of church service in the synagogue, uh, and then what we're picking up today is the following Saturday uh, church service in the synagogue. And so between, you know, Saturday to Saturday, a lot has happened. Um, the assumption is not that, that Paul and, his, and Barnabas were just kind of hanging out, waiting for synagogue to happen again. They, they would have been, you know, meeting with people in homes. They would have been having meals, interactions in the marketplace. Uh, and so a lot was happening kind of Saturday to Saturday. Um, but uh, it, as last week's text read, they were eager to hear more of what Paul had to say about this Jesus and what it meant uh, to the world and to the Jewish people. And so he shows up again uh, on this second synagogue, and that's where we pick up this morning in verse Verse 44, and then I'm going to read down through verse 7 of chapter 14 for us today. So this is, this is the word of God for, for his people this morning. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. 
and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. This is God's word. Let's ask him to bless the preaching of it. Father, uh, it's now uh, with collective hearts uh, in this park, and maybe if someone's listening uh, online at a later, later time, we have collective hearts here that are meditating on the things of your word, and uh, we pray that all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. Lord, I ask that you would make the words of this one man's mouth pleasing to you. Lord, you're our rock and you're our redeemer, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A uh, couple anniversaries going on, not my wedding anniversary. Um, one is coming up in January. Uh, in January, uh, January 10th of, of the next year, we as a church will be celebrating uh, five years of gathered worship together. Yeah, a little golf clap there. Saw that. That's Presbyterian. Um, and we just, uh, five years of gathered worship. Now, my family and I, we moved here a little longer than five years ago to do the work. But five years in January will be what we, you know, we've been gathering together as a church like this, at least on Sunday mornings. And, you know, I don't know um, if you know all that goes into starting a new church, planting a new church. Um, uh, I mentioned in that little kind of off-the-cuff market, we're, we're a Presbyterian church. And so if that's news to you, Welcome to a Presbyterian church, but uh, Presbyterian um, is, a, is kind of a, an alternative word for people who love to do things, as the Bible says, indecent and in order, uh, aka really slow. We, just, we love process, we love, being, we love being really thoughtful about things, and kind of the, the whole process of starting Mosaic Church, was it was, it was a couple years long. Um, we were in Texas at the time, and so before you come to start, you don't show up and like just buy a couple signs and start a church, at least not in our circles. There's, there's just a lot. There's demographic studies of the area, and you've got to make sure that it's, there's like some strategy behind wh- where we're going, why we're going there. Uh, there's assessment. They've got to make sure that, you know, the planting pastor, you know, is, is okay, that he's, you know, he's able to do this kind of work. And there's training, and there's, you know, we've got to raise a lot of money, and you've got to do visit the, the area, and there's just a lot that goes into planning a church, and, uh, you know, the, 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 
I love decency and order. Like I love being Presbyterian. Don't get me wrong. Um, but in but in the in the Bible, at least in the New Testament times, that that was not the process. Uh, it, it appears that the church at Antioch and Pisidia got planted in a week, like Sabbath to Sabbath, new church. Um, but but one of the one of the reasons we plant churches, one of the reasons that that, that my family um, moved here to to begin the work of of planting Mosaic Church, is um, is represented in a in a single statement. Um, there's not many single statements in a book that have captured my attention like this one. I want to read it to you. And here's, here's, here's what caught my attention I read from, a, from, a, from an author, commentator one time. He said that the single most effective evangelistic methodology under heaven is planting new churches. L- let me just translate that into non-jargony type of terms. The best way to reach people who do not know about Jesus is to plant new churches. And, you know, that's not to say there aren't other ways, um, but, but there is something uniquely qualitative about a, a new church that, that draws un, unchurched or what I would call de-churched people. Maybe people that have been around the church, been around the gospel, but that aren't, aren't interested. And so when we, when we came to Plant Mosaic, the, the goal was not to find, um, you know, all you know, 24 Presbyterians that were in town and then, like, start a church. Like, the goal was to reach new people with the good news about Jesus. Um, and, and by God's grace, we've done that. Some of you are, are products of that. You're in our church, and you were not formerly a believer, and now you are. And, and that's been a really beautiful, sweet thing, um, that, our, that our desire as a church is not just to, like, shuffle sheep from another church and if and if you're a sheep that came from another church to our church you're welcome too that's that's great um, but like that wasn't our aim it wasn't just to find christians and just start a new christian thing it was to reach new people and it still is our aim that's why we that's why we exist and we want to plant more churches that's anniversary number one anniversary number two uh, is today, actually, um, November 1st, uh, 2001, uh, to the best of my knowledge, is the day I became a Christian. Uh, today is is my anniversary of coming to faith in Jesus. And that's, uh, you know, not all of you are able to kind of pinpoint, uh, you know, your conversion date like that. I, I don't highly recommend it, but the, the backdrop of, of my life, I was just, you know, I was 20 years old at the time and just had a really, really low, dark point of my life. I had lost a lot and uh, was just, just kind of in a, just in a really lost season of life. And the way I was saved, I'll, I'm not going to give you the full testimonies, this isn't a testimony service, but, you know, the way I was saved is, is what the, the old Puritans used to say uh, was through the bare reading of Scripture. Um, so I was in a friend's garage, and I opened a Bible, and it came alive. Um, I have just no other way to describe it. I don't know what I read. I can't give you the, 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 the you know, chapter and verse, but, but God met me in my friend's garage through the reading of the Bible. And so that was 19 years ago, and I've been trying to figure out what following Jesus looks like uh, ever since, and I still haven't figured that out fully. Um, but, but oftentimes, particularly on the, on the anniversary date, so to speak, of my conversion, I ask myself this question, why me? Like, why did I believe? Uh, I wasn't, I'm not smarter than anybody. Um, I had very little exposure to the Christian faith, um, and I had, I had really done nothing 
um, to put myself in that position at that point. And so I've always just kind of, in the, you know, I've always just kind of asked that. Like, why, why was I made to believe? Um, today's passage in the book of Acts, you, you, you can't, you know, I, I've been studying it for a couple weeks now. You can't get away from the fact, um, the language of the, of the narrative is that there were some who were believing and some who were not believing. The, the Jews were largely rejecting. The Gentiles were largely receiving. Uh, the city was divided. Um, it's, it's all about belief and unbelief. What, why? You know, and, 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 and there, there are some really um, poignant theological statements in this passage that I want to unpack with you this morning. Uh, but before we kind of do that, let me just make it really clear uh, to, to kind of the listening audience today. Uh, there are only two kinds of people in the world. Uh, there are those who are believing in the gospel, and there are those who are not believing in the gospel. Uh, it's real clear cut like that. I love that about the Bible. There's lots of black and white. Now, discerning whether you are in the believing or not believing camp can be a little bit, um, a little bit tedious, a little, little challenging sometimes, and I'm going to help you kind of sift through some of that today. But I just want you to know that I, that I as a, you know, you know, expositor of God's word, uh, I prepare as though I'm speaking to both people today. I'm pe- speaking to people that are believing in the gospel, and I'm speaking to people this morning that are not believing in the gospel. So that's kind of my disclaimer for the passage. Uh, here's a really semi-uninspiring points, back-to-back weeks now, if you've been with us two weeks. Two points today, uh, nothing super inspiring about the points themselves. Uh, let's talk first about unbelief, and then let's talk secondly about belief. So let's, let's talk about unbelief uh, that's going on here in Antioch of Pisidia and Iconium. Uh, you'll notice that that the the kind of the methodology or the practice of Paul and Barnabas is the same wherever they go. They find a Jewish synagogue uh, on a Sabbath that's meeting, and then they unfold God's word, the fuller revelation of the Old Testament, and how Jesus uh, fulfills all of that. That's it's their methodology. It's what they're using week in and week out. And what begins happening is there there's this growing hunger to hear more. And the thing that they're attracting the people with um, is not anything that's uh, kind of f- flash in the pan. It's not anything that's really a big deal. Some wonders and signs were attached to the, to the, to the service in Iconium, you'll notice. But, but the way the text reads in verse 44 is people were there to hear the word of the Lord. Uh, the, the plain preaching of the scriptures. As Paul would put it in other places in the New Testament, that, that he would preach Christ and him crucified. And so there was, this, there was this increasing hunger and at the same time hostility towards that message. And, and the messenger, Paul himself, was unimpressive. Uh, he was he was an educated man. He was raised uh, in the Jewish faith under one of the greatest Jewish rabbis, uh, but his physical presentation of himself and the gospel was rather unimpressive. Um, I came across one the the New Testament doesn't really describe people that often, um, but I came across a, an outside of the Bible description of the Apostle Paul. Here's. Here's how, uh, actually, it was a, a resident of Iconium who, uh, in a historical book, described Paul this way. He was a man of small stature with a bald head, 
and crooked legs and with eyebrows meeting and a nose somewhat hooked. <laughs> That's Paul. Like short, bald, unibrow, and crooked legs. Like, I mean, like there's, there's nothing, you know, less impressive, I, I, I feel like. Um, so, so what you see here is the thing that is drawing people is the substance of the message. But the very same thing that was drawing people was also repelling them. When the Jew, largely the Jews in this passage, observed what was going on, the passage describes them as being filled with jealousy. Uh, that word uh, could also be translated zeal. There was a single-minded commitment to the Jewish faith that they felt like this message was disrupting. And you see, um, you see in their conduct how their unbelief was stirring up all kinds of activity. They found the important influential people, the men and women of the city, to kind of you know badmouth these these men who were preaching uh, in their minds a, f- a false gospel, and you see this kind of um, this this threat that they feel from this message. So what is it that's so threatening? Like what is it about the gospel that is so threatening to people? Here's 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 kind of what I think. Uh, my, you know, in chapter 13 was Paul's kind of first recorded sermon that we have. And if, if you think about just at the core of, of the Christian message, which is verses 38 and 39 of chapter 13, Paul's sermon, the core of the Christian message is that forgiveness of sins is available through this one man, Jesus, and you can be freed from everything that you couldn't free yourself from. Like that's, that's the core of the message. Forgiveness is offered to people freely, and you couldn't do it yourself. If, if you were going to kind of boil that down a little bit, um, if that's true, if the gospel about Jesus is true, here's what, what the reasonable response is. You have to abandon all other systems of salvation. There's no other way. And... Um, you know whether whether you're a religious person or not a religious person, everyone has systems of salvation in their life. Uh, for for like the non-religious person, uh, the, a system a system of salvation could sound something like this: um, As long as I am generally a good person, everything will be okay. So you know the. The ardent atheists and even kind of the, the, the unsure agnostic can kind of camp out in that area of just saying, hey, as long as I'm not bad as the worst person, everything should work out fine for me. It's a system of salvation. Now, for the religious person that goes kind of a little, their, their system of salvation, this would have been the Jews largely. Their system of salvation would have sounded something like this. As long as I'm a really good person then everything will be okay. And what both of those systems of salvation have in common is that they both uh, love control. So control is the thing that the gospel undermines. Because if, if what Jesus says is true, then the only rational response is for you to, to surrender everything. 
Like you, you, there is no middle way with Jesus. You can't hold on to some control of your life. If, if he is the son of God who came and lived the life you couldn't live, died the death you should have died, and then rose victoriously over sin, Satan, and death itself for you, if that is true, the core of the gospel is true, the only rational response is to, to surrender all control to him. It's the only way to, to be a Christian. And that's deeply offensive to people who love control. And both non-religious and religious people love control. And what the gospel begins to do, it, it begins to kind of put these underpinnings in your life, unbeliever, that says you are not in control. <laughs> and if there's ever been a moment in your, in your life, right now is a moment where you've felt that in really tangible ways. You are not in control. And what the gospel does is it begins to give you handles and grips for things that says it's okay to not be in control. And so the, the threat of the religious people was that they would lose control. And when, you, and when you lose that, you lose everything in their minds. See, what, what the religious zealots of, of this passage, the, the Jewish people, were losing was this sense of superiority. Right, like if the Gentiles can be saved, like who's to say? Like all bets are off. Like if, if anyone can get into this thing, if this is available to everyone, like how how do I how do I have any moral high standing ground above anybody? And the answer is you don't. It also, what it would have done is it, um, what religion uniquely did for the Jewish people was it isolated them from outsiders and people who did not think, act, feel, vote like them, you know, believe like them. Like, it, it, it provided this insulatory nature of their lives. Unbelief does that. It makes you feel better than people, and it, makes you, and it holds you to no accountability, right? Like, you, you can believe whatever you want to believe. That's kind of that's how unbelief operates. It's what was going on here in Antioch and in Iconium. So then the belief, where does, let's talk about the belief. Where does the belief come th- from? Why were some people believing and others were not? That's, that's kind of the million-dollar question. And I, I just kinda want, I'm just going to just go straight to the jugular here. Uh, verse 48. Look at verse 48. Let me just read it again. It's the plain text. When the Gentiles heard this, uh, meaning the, it's a quote from Isaiah 49 right above it, that the Gentiles have been given a light and that salvation's available to them. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And then here's, you know, here's the zinger. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, before I begin to, to talk a little bit about that, let me just say just one one little thing. Uh, I'm not here to like persuade anyone on any theological position. I'm not really interested in like theological persuasion from the pulpit. If you want to, you want to talk about these deeper kind of things, you can you can buy me lunch. We'll go we'll go talk about it, about it at lunch. Uh, but but I do I do want to give you I do want to give you some handles on this. I want you to I want you to think. I want you to grapple with this a little bit, and then to see how you know, why Luke would, would say such a thing and what that means for your life. So here's the statement. Who believes? People who are appointed to eternal life. There are one of two ways to interpret that passage. Uh, it is based on either God's divine foreknowledge, 
or God's divine sovereignty. Let me just, again, I don't want to go deep into the weeds of the theological debate, but here, here's kind of the nuts and bolts. Uh, there is no way to get around this passage. It is in the Bible. It is clear. It is all over the place. We're going to see that in a minute here. But the teaching is either that the, the reason these Gentiles were believing is because of God's foreknowledge. In other words, he appointed them to eternal life based on something he would see in the future. So who does God appoint and elect to eternal life? Anyone who believes. Okay? That's one take on it. The other take is that God, out of his sheer pleasure and mercy, appoints some people to eternal life, and they believe. So who believes? People that were appointed to eternal life. Why do they believe? Because they were appointed to eternal life. Very small difference, but very, very significant difference. Does God appoint people to eternal life based on their faith, in the future, or based on his sheer mercy. And, and here's what I want to do. I just, want, I, just, I just pulled out, and it's all over the Bible. Uh, you can just, I mean, the sheet would be endless. But I pulled out four or five, uh, and I just went with Jesus' words, not to elevate them above the rest of Scripture. All Scripture is God's word. But I pulled out just a number of Jesus' teachings for you just to hear Jesus talk about this, and then I'll let you come to your conclusion, and maybe I'll push you in one direction or another. What did Jesus have to say about our faith? Where does our belief come from? And I'm not going to give you all the references because it'll make it feel clunky and we don't have the screen up here. So I'm just going to read Jesus' words and you just kind of take them in for a minute. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. He would go on and say later, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. And then final one I'll read this morning. Jesus would say, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So I read those to you, um, not to, again, convince you or persuade you of a th theological bent, but it appears to me that what's happening in Acts, and, and Luke makes this theological assertion, you know, all those who were appointed to eternal life believed. And Jesus' teaching seems to be saying that the reason you believe is because you were made to believe. 
And, and, and if that doesn't feel sharp to you, and if questions of like, well, how is that fair? All those questions, again, we can do that at lunch. Like I'm not, I'm not here to really answer that. I'm just, all this passage does is brings to the surface the reality that you, if you're here today believing, have done nothing special to believe. That it was a sheer, magnificent gift of God's grace. You were made to believe. Now, if all that's true, you know, if, if, if all that I have said is true, what does that mean for your life? Uh, here's what it meant for, for the, the life of these believers who believe these things, I, I believe. It meant that they would do a couple of things. One, that they would evangelize boldly. That they would tell other people about Jesus um, because he's the one who gives faith. I mean, can you imagine, and maybe you have imagined this, can you imagine the sheer weight of someone's eternal destiny resting on your shoulders? Like that you have to be persuasive enough or your preaching has to be savvy enough or your, you know, your, your, your collective draw to people coming into the church has to be just you know, off the charts, you know, engaging. Like if you operate like that, it will crush you. Um, but the good news is that that, that that weight is just not on you. See, the early followers of Jesus knew that the weight was squarely on the shoulders of God. Their, their responsibility in this whole thing was to tell other people about Jesus and the results, whether it was embracing the faith or rejecting the faith, was not up to them. And so they would, they would evangelize boldly and they would also, they would also just expect hostility. Like, I mean, the way the, that they left Antioch was they got ran out of town, right? Their message was not welcome there. It was overturning the religious systems, and they uh, were not popular. And so, you know, to, Jesus taught his people, shake the dust off your feet when you leave a city. If they don't want what you have to sell them, you know, you, you go on to the next city. So they move on to Iconium. So let me, let me just do this, kind of circling around a little bit. Um. I want, again, I want this to be like fresh air. Like this is, this is, this is the richest of the riches. Like this is the choicest of the meats that God appoints people to eternal life and gives them belief. And again, assuming there are, there are several, two types of people here, believing and and non-believing, let me just be really clear about the substance of this news. The substance of this news is that Jesus frees you from everything you could not free yourself from. So the things that, that shackle your, um, your interior life and your exterior life uh, are the things that Jesus came to undo. The way Jesus frequently talked to people who were listening to his message was that he came to bind up the brokenhearted. He came to make people's hearts whole. Because they knew that they, they, he knew that they couldn't do it on their own, and so Jesus, you know, the good news is that, uh, as the the Gospel of John records for us, it says that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. So that's that's the invitation. Like I am extending that invitation to 
all who would hear of it today. The invitation is to believe upon Jesus. And when I say believe, I'm not asking you to like check off theological um, statements. Like I'm not asking you to, to say certain things right or to just assent to certain doctrines or truths of our church. To believe upon someone is to put your wholehearted trust on them. To, to throw yourself on the work of Jesus. To come to an end of yourself saying, I will never be able to fix my broken heart. I've tried time and time again. There is nothing that will bind up my brokenness. And I must throw myself on this one. That's what it means to believe on the Son. Because whoever believes in him has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son will not see life. In other words, if you continue to try to bind up your broken heart on your own merit, on your own efforts, on your own strong-willed, bootstrapping type of efforts, you will never see life. So, you know, I think some of you are here today and maybe you're just, you're kind of skeptic. You're curious about Christianity. Maybe some of you just like grew up in Christian homes. So, you know, maybe I'm speaking to maybe our younger population here. You've been around the church. You're, 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 you're hearing the gospel preached regularly. But there's still some, some curiosity that's lined with skepticism and doubt. And, you know, I guess I, I want to I just give you the invitation that maybe you don't believe this to be true today. But will you at least admit this? You want it to be true? Like, I think for some of you, particularly the more curious and more doubtful, like, that's a big step, is that you at least would admit that you want the good news about Jesus' work to be true for your life. I also think there's people here today who, who feel like, you know, their, their faith is just, like, hanging on by a thread, right? Like, some of you are just, like, going through the ringer right now. Like, life is overturned. You know, you're, I don't know, you're, you're underemployed or unemployed or you're just, you know, you're, you're hemorrhaging out, you know, financial situation or your kids are rebellious or your marriage is like, you know, beyond the rocks. It's like deep, like wh wherever you're at and like you're just hanging on by like this thin thread of belief. And here's what I, I think you need to hear today. Like it is not the strength of your faith that will save you. It is the object of your faith that will save you. Like Jesus regularly, regularly told people to have just a little bit of faith, right? Like the mustard seed, right? Like it's, it's not how strongly you are holding on to Jesus. It is how strongly he is holding on to you. You must just throw yourself on him. That's what belief in the gospel is, to throw yourself on the person and work of Jesus. He wants, he wants nothing less of you. And then finally, I think there's, you know, plenty of people here that are, that are in good, good faith. Like you feel like you're, you're strongly believing. I've even had recent conversations with some of you where like this season of life has, has really birthed and awakened new things in your spiritual life. And I am, I'm just over the hills happy for you. Like it's, that's wonderful. And so to you, um, I'll leave you with just this thought, and we're going we're gonna to sing this song as, as we're kind of wrapping up right now.
I, I want you, I'll just steal the, the line of the song if I can think of it. I don't have it written down. I want you to ask yourself, why was I made to hear your voice? Like, why me? I'm not, I'm not more intellectually inclined. I'm not more spiritually attuned. I, I did nothing. Why was I made to hear your voice? And, and if you'll let that just wash over you, like that will, that will revitalize faith in all new ways. The good news for the believer in Jesus today is that God has appointed to eternal life those who would believe. And if that's you today, you ought to be screaming to the mountaintops. It ought to produce this deep humility in your life. Deep humility. It, it, it undermines any sense of superiority or self-righteousness that you could be carrying around with you. Why was I made to hear your voice? Let's pray and give thanks that, he, that he's made his voice known to some of us. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you um, for coming to us and becoming like us. Lord, there is no other God in any other world religious system who is like you. A God who would leave the eternal heavenlies to come and dwell near his people. That you took on our flesh experience. That you knew what it was like to be um, suspicious and doubtful. Lord, there were moments where you, though you clung to your faith all the time perfectly, Lord, but you knew the temptation to flee and to doubt and to be suspicious. But Lord, you never caved. And so, Lord, I thank you that you've given some of us ears to hear your voice. And maybe there's some today here that, that have never heard your voice. Would you give them ears to hear? That they would long to have their heart made whole and that they would throw themselves on you and they would believe even for the first time today. Please, Jesus, do this for the sake of your kingdom and your glory and your power. I pray these things in your name. Amen. This is the sermon podcast for Mosaic Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Committed to bringing the beauty of the gospel of Jesus to the broken places of our lives. 